Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Downing. My guest today is Dr. Becky Andrews, a naturopathic doctor, acupuncturist, and herbalist. She is a graduate of the University of Kentucky and Bastyr University. Dr. Andrews specializes in chronic mystery illnesses, mood and neurotransmitter issues, geonomics, pain, sports injuries, digestive issues, fatigue, environmental, and mold illnesses. In Seattle, she had a private practice and served as faculty at Bastyr University. Dr. Andrews moved to Austin in late 2011 to work as the educational coordinator for the American Botanical Council. Following that appointment, she served as adjunct faculty at AOMA School of Integrative Medicine. She currently serves as a naturopathic health consultant at People's Rx and has a private naturopathic and acupuncture practice at Sishu Acupuncture Wellness. Dr. Andrews also serves on the advisory board of the Children's Airway First Foundation. You can find out more about Dr. Becky at drbecky.net. And now, here's my interview with Dr. Becky Andrews. All right. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon, Dr. Becky. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you, Rebecca. It's great to see you. It's been a while. I know. I know. It's been too long. It's been an uncomfortably busy year, hasn't it? It has. It has. So I appreciate you being here with us. And as we dig in, I'd like to start with exactly what a neuropathic doctor is and how your approach differs from what most people know of mainstream medicine. Okay. Um, so first I'm going to gently correct. It's naturopathic, which is a weird Thank word you. that most people haven't actually even heard. So um, yeah, and it's a great question. I, I have a, a spiel in fact that I give to all my patients here in Texas because it's so not well known here. Uh, so I am going to actually answer the question that you asked, but before I answer that, I think the first thing that I need to make clear is that there's actually several separate groups of people that kind of use that same title, especially okay. in states that don't license naturopathic doctors. Um, if there's no licensure for a, a profession, that means there's no title protection. And so mm. in states like Texas, um, where there's no licensure for naturopathic doctors, that means anybody can call themselves a naturopath, and they do. Um, Got it. So the and, and the the other thing I guess that I'm figuring out that it's taken me ten years to figure this out is that there are a lot of people that hear the word naturopath and they think that it is a descriptor like holistic. They think mm -hmm. that it's just like it, it's just an adjective or something, and it's right. not. It's an actual academic medical degree like osteopath or medical doctor or dentist. So it's, it's an actual degree. It's a specific thing with parameters and a diploma and things. So it's not, and the whole, yep. yeah, it's not a descriptor like holistic or integrative. Um, but I Got think a lot of people think of it that as a descriptor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons oh, yeah. it's used in so many other contexts and gets tagged on to other kinds of practitioners that aren't actually naturopathic doctors. Um, right. So three main groups. One of them is the first group is the one I consider myself part of. And those okay. are what I would call the medically trained naturopathic physicians. Now the Texas Medical Board does not want me to apply the word physician to me myself because I'm not licensed in Texas. The reality is, is that I am a licensed physician in Washington state. So 
actually, technically, I am a physician. And if one of them went to Seattle, I wouldn't expect them to say that they weren't a physician. Um, So medically trained naturopaths, we learn all the same facts about how the body works. We learn all the same science about how the body works and physiology and biochemistry, all of that. Um, mm-hmm. What's different from uh, us between med- us and medical doctors isn't the information. It's not the science or the data or the facts. It's how we apply them. So okay. I think Western medicine has a fundamental assumption that disease can just happen. It can just be bad luck or it, you know, like almost like an accident that you got this chronic degenerative disease, which in, mm-hmm. in our philosophy is that the body will heal itself if nothing's in the way that our bodies have a natural inclination towards homeostasis. And so as naturopathic doctors, instead of just trying to cut off and make, get rid of the symptom or eliminate the symptom, we look at why is the symptom happening? What is that telling us? And, and what we call it, we call it uh, find and treat the cause is one of the words, the phrases that we use. And another Mm -hmm. phrase in our philosophy is remove the obstacle to cure. And that one's a really Mm -hmm. big deal. And I really, that's that's a juicy one that I've always really liked. Um, And that is what is in the body's way of healing itself. Okay, so what's an example of that? That fundamental concept that the body will heal itself if, if it has all the tools and resources that it needs, and there's nothing in the way. And okay. that, that premise is completely missing from Western medicine. Um, oh, absolutely. Like that's one of the, the biggest places where we diverge. And then I think that the second, it, like on that fundamental philosophy, there's a divergence there. The other way we really are different from conventional doctors is that um, we don't fragment care. So, you know, in the conventional system, especially now, you, they, they, mm-hmm. they pretty much don't have generalists. Um, mm-hmm. Like really your primary care doctors have been reduced, especially in here in Texas, what I've seen is primary care doctors don't actually give care at all, unless it's just an antibiotic. Anything right, else, it's symptom response. referring mm-hmm. to somebody, some other specialist. And mm-hmm. I'm always boggled by that. I'm like, to send somebody to a psychiatrist for a basic antidepressant. You don't need to send somebody to an endocrinologist for basic thyroid support or, or birth control. Like that's not what the endocrinologist does. Anyway, so I, I, that, that level of fragmentation, I think really utterly destroys any hope of in- integrity of care. Right. And so the mm-hmm. naturopathic doctors are trained to look at all the systems and most importantly, how they connect to each other. Right. And so, uh, you know, one of my favorite examples of this would be somebody that has, I think I would, yeah, some, I'll just go ahead and give the example now. Um, Somebody like you say, you have a patient that has a sinus infection and has like IBS. And then Mm -hmm. they also have anxiety and depression. Okay. Uh, Conventional medicine would send them to a gastroenterologist, an EENT, or an allergist, and a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Correct. They would treat them as if those were three completely separate things. As a mm-hmm. naturopath, I would be like, hmm, that's all the same cause. Uh, wow. Right. So I would be like, okay, so that IBS 
and sinus, chronic sinus inflammation are both being caused by something they're swallowing that's inflaming their mucous membranes and causing phlegm, right? So it's probably gluten or dairy. It might be soy, Mm. might be corn, might be two or three things combined, but it's probably something they eat every day. And if you cause inflammation in the tube, as it were, It changes your neurotransmitter production, both in your gut and in your brain. And when we get inflamed gut, we get a mildly, mildly inflamed brain. And so if you don't have good neurotransmitter production and mild, and you also have mild inflammation in the brain, you've got anxiety and depression. And so this leads me to lots of questions, right? This leads me to a lot of questions because, you know, I I did speak with, uh, and I will slaughter this as well, just with my lovely speech impediment osteopathic That's uh, provider. Thank you. Last Nailed week. It. Thank you. Um, and she said something very similar. And I, and I really, really want to dig into this because I'm starting to hear this pattern. We also heard this um, with Dr. Hall several episodes yeah. ago on how everything is connected. Yeah. And it really can come down to food. I mean, yeah. something as simple, especially in adults and, and older children, what we're putting in is part of what's happening to our bodies, even though we think, oh, I'm eating this healthy thing. And then you start to unpack it and you realize, no, it's processed out the yin yang. That's right. And we're doing this to ourselves. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the difference between eating food that like you pull the carrot out of the ground, you wipe it off on your overalls and stick it in your mouth. The difference mm-hmm. between that and yeah, like a, a packaged muffin that you get. Like <laughs> just like the difference is so stark biochemically mm-hmm. of what's in it, and and you 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 on the list of questions you asked, uh, you were asking me also about environment, and I was like, oh god, how many hours does she have to talk? Right. About? Um, <laughs> because yeah, the the chemicals that we're exposed to, oh my god, they are having such a huge impact on not just our current bodies, but on the gonadal development and then embryonic development, and then the I mean, yeah, the cycle oh. is getting so. We're we're now at the third generation of children who are born with a body birth. Third and generation. So, yeah, we're so the children being born now, their grandmothers were exposed to chemical enough chemicals to change their hormones. And those changes, and then so the the female children those women had, those all right, so grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. The female children those women had formed in the uterus in the context of toxic chemicals being present when that body was being formed. And so that changed the eggs that were made, that were developed in that, that female embryo. And then they are now the mothers of the children that are being born. So they were those mothers, their entire body was formed in the context of toxic chemicals being around it. So trying to put this in something that that I can digest here. Yeah, so affected their generation. And these this next generation that's being born, they're I mean, we're seeing them, their whole hormone systems are different. We're talking about this next generation, just you know, again to wrap my head around the ones that are teenagers. Generation Z. Yeah. Yeah. So Gen Z. So okay, got it. Millennials Gen Z. Yeah. Um, their mothers' bodies were formed 
in the context of chemicals. And therefore, they're not only are their mother's hormones different and that they pass those genes down, but that eggs that are formed in those uteruses, because w- women are born with all the eggs that we're ever going to have. Uh-huh. So we form all the, the, our future children are formed when we are embryos. And so you dip that in toxic chemicals, it's going to change everything about any future children those babies have. Wow. Yeah, it's it's just what the the level of impact that the chemicals that we started using in 1945, like we're only just now starting to see just how bad that's really the impact of that. Yeah, but that's one of the reasons that we're seeing so much diabetes. It's one of the reasons we're seeing. I mean, there's you know all of the chronic diseases that we have. They're all multi-factors. They're not just Mm -hmm. one thing, right? But but you know. One of the reasons we're seeing so much obesity, one of the reasons we're seeing so much diabetes, one of the reasons we're seeing autism and attention deficit. I think part of that is is the chemical exposure that their mothers had. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. That was fascinating. It's nothing right, to do with so, our airways, but um, you know. Right. You said the right. word environment, and this is where my brain goes. And this is where it goes. So, all right. So w- around the environment, I, I have... I have a couple of different directions that I want to go and I want to make sure that, that we cover you know, one of which is really digging into food and, and the environment and how it impacts. And the other is specifically around, and it, and it, it leads to it. So I'm going to ask you which way you want to go first. Um, the other is you know, what we know historically, specifically, you know, let's start with Weston price on just how our, our our jaws have changed so much, and and again that it all ties together, right? It all ties together with food and the industrial revolution and how we've yes, yes. changed everything. So yeah. I don't know which way you want to go with well, that. I think that we should separate because they're both okay. so big and complicated. We should separate environmental toxin and mold exposure. We should separate that from food. Okay, and, and I kind of think of them like food has the impact of. Uh, structure, like that's like the raw materials we build ourselves out of. And mm-hmm. the toxic chemicals are like poisons that are coming in from the outside and changing us. Okay. So I think let's start with the foundation of food stuff. All right. Let's start with that. Yeah. Let's go there. Do you let's have a specific there. place you want me to start? Or do you want me to just talk, start with the Weston Price stuff, which was. Yeah. So we can start with Weston Price. Give it, give everybody just a little bit of a background on yeah. you know, Weston Price, the dentist. And, you know, the work he did in the 1920s. All right. Um, So I'm going to scroll out a little bit more and put this in some fun social context. Um, So when Candy first, uh, when Candy and I first connected um, and started talking about forming calf, um, you know, I was like, well, I'm not an airway doctor. I don't know really much about this. What do I have to offer? She's like, you're the one that figured this out. And mm-hmm. I, and it made me like, think about where would I like, where in my training are the pieces that allowed me to recognize an airway disorder in her daughter. Right. And, um, I, I went, then went back to thinking about, um, several of my teachers in medical school teaching me, uh, and, and again, we didn't talk about airway disorders in an, any extended way, uh, okay. in medical school because it's just not currently a thing in the curriculum. Right. But it was actually mentioned in passing by mentioning the work of this particular dentist named Weston Price in the 1920s. Okay. 
And um, the context that I was taught in uh, naturopathic medical school was in uh, how profoundly diet impacts fetal development, like maternal diet affects how the child is formed. And then early childhood diet affects how the child's body grows. And in particular, they did mention that it changes the shape of the jaw. Wow. And that was sort of central to this person's work. And he recorded so much of it that it sort of got trickled down into uh, part of the naturopathic sort of dogma and ideology. And so okay. we spent a ton of time talking about it, but I had one of my professors was just super into the Weston Price stuff. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that it was when I had just started to teach on faculty and he and I were having lunch together and we ended up on in a rabbit hole. And I was really fascinated by this whole idea. And it, it, it caught my imagination enough that the memory of it stuck. So years, what is this like 15, 20 years later, I'm talking to Candy about this and I'm like, you know, this isn't just about getting surgical or structural intervention between this age and this age. This is like, we can prevent this. Like this, right. it's much bigger. This, isn't, this isn't a random accidental default thing that happens. This happens mm -hmm. for a reason. So that's sort of going back to that naturopathic mindset is the, well, why? Right. Why, and why does this not happen to everybody? Why is it happening more often? Right. And so that, and that triggered the memory of Weston Price's work. Um, okay. So here is Weston Price's work. So basically this guy was a dentist in the early 1900s and in the like 19 teens and twenties. Um, unfortunately it does have the origins in the eugenics movement, which is mm -hmm. super yucky. And we wish that it didn't have that affiliation, but he went right. started on this worldwide tour where he was going to take photographs and measurements of different indigenous people's skulls in an attempt to prove that white European men were the superior race. What's right. fascinating is that over the years that he was doing this, he came to the opposite conclusion and mm -hmm. abandoned the eugenics movement. He decided mm -hmm. that it was butt which it is. Um, it is. Yeah, and so what he discovered, and, and irrefutably true, was that indigenous people who did not have a Europeanized diet um, that did, were not eating refined or ground flours, were not eating bread, were not eating sugar. They were instead eating roots and, you know, roughage and things that they had to chew a whole lot. Um, mm -hmm. Those people consistently had these very wide upper palates and wide jaws. They had perfect teeth. Now, remember, he was a dentist, so he was particularly interested in teeth. Right. And took photographs of their smiles and then photographs uh, had them lift their lips away, photographs of their teeth and photographs of their upper palates. And so all of them had these big wide palates, big open sinuses, high cheekbones, beautiful smiles. He also mm -hmm. noticed they didn't have any cavities and that was true throughout the lifetime. They were born mm -hmm. and died with these huge sets of beautiful teeth. They didn't have to have their wisdom teeth pulled. They weren't, there was no crowding. And he finally came to the conclusion that it was due to that indigenous non-refined diet. 
And he also would find siblings or other members of that cohort. And when he was lucky, he'd find a sibling or a twin that had somehow become separated. And mm -hmm. one of them had been fed the European diet and one had been fed the indigenous diet. And without fail, the child that had been fed the European diet had a, yeah. their, like their face was very, very narrow. Their lower jaw and upper jaw wow. were narrow. They open their mouth and their teeth are completely crowded and turned sideways and crooked and decaying. And, and it was just dramatic. And I don't, I did not read, read his work enough to know if he observed that there were already airway problems in those children. But based on what we know now, it's not possible that there weren't. That there weren't, right. And it's twofold, right? It's yeah. what they ate. But that what they ate was, if I'm understanding this correctly, it actually caused a workout. So a carrot is going to work the muscles in your jaw yes. and, and your yes. and your oral area versus if you're eating mushed carrots. That's right. That's right. So so some, from what I can tell, there's been um, he sort of started it, but there have been several other anthropological studies on mm -hmm. this kind of idea. And the rough conclusion that they've come to right now is that the physical structural part is primarily due to the chewing early okay. on that that as soon as there's teeth they're working those muscles they're working it and it's and it's and it's helping with the formation um okay. but there's um in in and so that's separate kind of from the medical research on it and it okay. and i noticed the structure of anthropological research is really than the structure of medical research. They're not looking at placebo-controlled double-blind studies. They're looking mm -hmm. at themes and trends, and it's, it's really interesting. It's kind of refreshing. Um, and so I feel like that the, 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 the fiber and the chewing is part of it, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. other piece, I think, is the nutrients themselves that are in present in a whole foods diet, plant-based diet, where you're going to get a lot of vitamin K because you're eating a lot of leaves. You're going to mm -hmm. get a lot of vitamin D and you're going to get a lot of vitamin A in the form of beta carotene. Um, and it turns out that if you look in the medical literature, they, um, oh, I forgot the other big nutrient is folate. So mm -hmm. our yep. things that we're looking for, for the vitamins and nutrients that we're looking for, and this appears to be prenatal, so nutrients that the mother would consume before and during pregnancy, and then nutrients that are essential for the baby, the child, when they're first developing. And those so that what the mother eats. So even though okay, you, you take the pre, right, you take yeah. you take the prenatal vitamins and all of that business and whatever. But what you're saying is it's actually let's go a step further. Let's talk about what the mom's eating. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so what they, yeah, what the anthropology stuff says and what Western Price found was that what the mom ate also affected the palate width and stuff of the child. So part Which of that is probably step the child once the child is born and starts to develop on their own. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that it would only be very recently in history where a mother might eat one way and then the child and then you know, a few months later might raise their child on totally different food. Like, I think that's a very modern phenomenon. I think traditionally the kid was going to eat what the family ate because we just didn't have that kind of variety of choices. You know, right. this whole part of, you know, this part of France was eating these five foods every day. Right. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. right. Right. We didn't have the, 
the choices that we have now. Right. Uh, but anyway, right. yeah, I think there's the chewing muscle part. And then I think there's the nutrient part and our nutrients are going to be folate and not folic acid. That's a really important distinction. Folic acid is synthetic garbage and our body doesn't actually have a really easy, it has to go through several steps before it can be converted into real folate to be used. And not everybody can do that. Um, so folate and specifically activated or methylated folate, that is what our bodies really actually need. Um, okay. so that piece, vitamin K, vitamin D, and vitamin A. And folate's going to be found in? Leafy greens, foliage. The bigger it. it is, the more folate it's got. And got it. here's another thing that I'm uh, just a factoid. You can destroy folate with heat. So if you cook the bejesus out of your kale until it's a mush, then it, the folate's pretty much gone. Oh. So you want to flash saute things, flash, flash, you know, you want to, what is it called when you dip it in boiling water and then dip it out? Oh, there's a word for it. A culinary. There is a word in it, blanche. Blanche. Thank you, blanche. There we go. Yes. So you're, you want to blanch your greens or lightly saute them. Or even like, like there's ways to make raw salads out of things without them really feeling raw by like massaging acid and salt into them. Um, you can break down the cell walls enough to be able to chew them easily and, and have easier access to the nutrients in it mm. without actually cooking it without heat. So, okay. So those, those kinds of ideas, but, but uh yeah, so basically the folate has to do with the development of the midline of the human being. So mm -hmm. if you don't have enough folate, if you're completely deficient, you can end up with things like neural tube defects where the spine doesn't seal and part of the part of the central nervous system sticking out. Um, what but that when you see that, you will also see the the top of the palate not growing together and you can end up with a cleft palate or even a cleft lip is the most severe form of that. Okay. But if you're not that deficient, you could see that if those things could happen, that it's not a far stretch, that if you're just a little low in folate, maybe it grows together, but just barely, and you end up with this tall, skinny thing instead of a wider arch because it doesn't finish. Maybe that, that high arch palate. Yeah. And that's something that I think we've talked about airway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's something that we've, I think we've talked about in previous podcasts that if the APGAR has changed and we start looking at mouths of infants when they're born can be adjusted. Yes. And, and yeah. caught early, which will help. But then we're back to, okay, you catch it. Now, as the child starts to develop, we, we move into what are they going to eat? How are we going to help strengthen yeah. and grow their palate the correct way? Yeah. Yeah. So I think just those interventions alone give the child a much better chance of, you know, uh, of that, that self-correcting. And then if we add onto it, some of these other techniques that some of the other specialists on the board know about, you know, of like, you know, without surgery, you know, mm -hmm. helping to restructure that from a like a more physical structural help. I think you combine that with diet. I think we're really on to some like real solutions if things don't get caught early enough and we can't take care of the prenatal piece. 
But gotcha. what excites me is the idea that maybe somebody cares enough about this that we can start addressing prenatal nutrition. And mm -hmm. now it's not necessarily just in the rich white women that we need to do that. We, we really, where we, where we really need that is in the more impoverished parts of, you know, our population, people that don't necessarily have access to fancier, you know, and unfortunately raw whole foods are now fancier foods, right? Right. What got subsidized in our culture is refined, refined crap and sugar. Mm -hmm. And so if you are on a limited income or you're getting your food from a food bank or you're getting your food from a discount place, it's going to be Twinkies and sugar mm -hmm. and refined stuff in packages. It's not going to be fresh produce. Right. Or McDonald's or, or, or something along those lines. It's easier. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper. You can afford it. And that's what's so important. So I think that what we really need to do is think about how do we subsidize actual healthy food and how do we address food deserts in our inner city? Yes. You know, like how do we how do we pay people in the inner city to or or in areas where there's food deserts? If there's a bunch of unemployed people, can we pay them to grow food in their neighborhood? Right? Mm -hmm. So that it's right mm -hmm. there in it's the right there. Can we and, subsidize and like places like a space for them to can and preserve that food so that, that, that they have it through the winter. Like let's look at urban homesteading and let's look at, you uh -huh. know, there's so many exciting and, you know, this all sounds so far away from airways, but at the end of the no, day, it's all related as, now as a naturopathic doctor, you can see how my brain works. It goes to like, what's the actual cause? Well, the actual right. cause is poverty. Right. The actual cause is, you know, refined food. The actual cause is policy. You know, the actual cause, I hate to say it, is partially capitalism. Right. And not that yeah. I don't want to live, you know, anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Nope. I understand. And, and, um, just kind of as a, a side note for our listeners, Dr. Dana Johnson will be on the podcast, um, in a later episode. And that is one of the things she will be discussing is oh, so environment and inner city and some of the work she's done at Lurie Children's and other places. Expert, right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, that, really that's going to be awesome. I was really excited about a lot of the things she was talking about. I was like, yes, yep. yes. Which will be so, so exciting. And I, I, you know, another thing is, is, is you were talking that I thought about is I, I, I try to correlate things, you know, to what I understand, right? So you, I try to put it in perspective that makes sense to me. And I figure if I can do that, our listeners can do that. But I think about when I was pregnant, I, you know, I got, okay, don't eat the donut. That's not good for your baby. <laughs> take, take your prenatal vitamin and drink lots of orange juice. These are my big takeaways. And this is somebody with a biology background. These were my I takeaways. Orange juice. I don't remember at this point, but there was something in orange juice that was supposed to be really good for the baby's brain. Oh, okay. And great. And I was like, all right, so drink a lot. And, you know, in, and depending on the cravings, you know, I was fortunate that both of my children see in utero seemed to really dig salad. So that was great. But, right. you know, even with my background coming into this, taking the traditional classes, yeah. that was my takeaway. Right. You know, and nobody said after the fact, hey, here are the things you can do once your baby's here. Yeah, this is why breastfeeding is so important. It wasn't, you know, I always heard it was just the breast milk. I had no idea. No, we're talking about jaw development. And, you know, 
setting your child up for success for airway and, and dental structure. And, and, you know, that's great that you want to feed them these, these soft baby foods, but wow, you realize what that's giving up. Why don't you just make your own pureed carrots because the nutri- nutrients are there and it doesn't take you that much longer. You know, these things weren't there. So I think when we're looking at one, educating, revamping how we're educating providers, because that's something that we're all talking about, because like you said, airway is not taught. These things aren't taught. It's also well, and, and just frankly, education across the board. I mean, moms don't know. Not taught. I mean, no. there are still a lot of medical doctors and like, I don't know what the statistics on it are, but I mean, still... I really last week, one of my patients said my primary care doctor rolled their eyes and said, you're what you eat has no impact on your health. They actually said that out loud. That's my I, like, I don't understand how somebody can study biochemistry and come to that conclusion. Like I just, I don't understand. You're listening to airway first with today's guest, Dr. Becky Andrews. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to ensure that every child has access to screening, evaluation, and treatment of all children's airway disorders before the age of six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. You can also find a ton of great resources for parents on our website, including videos, blogs, recommended books, comprehensive medical research, and more. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now, back to my interview with Dr. Becky Andrews. Which, by the way, I'd like to give my my doctor a shout out because he does not say these kind of things. I think I'm very fortunate in that. And I I feel like more and more that is going away. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. more and more medical schools are starting to incorporate at least a shout out to nutrition and a shout out to how nutrients impact your health and that they're actually important. Um, You know, I think that also a lot of medical doctors have a whole lot less biochemistry training than we think they do. Yeah. Um, I like, I, there are some, so, I mean, just going back to that first question about like, what makes you different than a medical doctor? I'm like the amount of education I have is almost double that of a medical doctor. So where, you know, they might get 15 or 18 hours of biochemistry training. I had a full year, right. They, they might have 18 or 20 hours of gross anatomy where they walked into a lab where the bodies were already dissected and they went, hmm, yes, I see, I see the structure. Mm-hmm. Whereas I had a year and I had to dissect a whole human being by myself. I mean, the difference right. in what you learn during those two processes is huge. It's right? huge. It's huge. Yeah. So let's pick up on that food part because yeah. again, one of the things that people are going to notice when they come to a naturopathic doctor website versus a traditional Western medicine doctor website is in the blog. You talk a lot about food. There's a lot. I'm like, the, I'm like the kale doctor. Every, like every other post is how to make another from a kale, right? Kale. <laughs> we love kale. So you do talk a lot about that and food and environment, obviously both can impact a child. 
but it actually impacts the brain as well. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, not to be horrifically cliche, but it actually is true that we are what we eat in a very literal sense. Every single molecule in our entire body, every bone, every muscle, every cell, every nerve, every enzyme, it all, 100% of it comes from food. All of it. It didn't come all from it. stardust. It doesn't like it is all from food. Every bit of right. it is built from that. So if you don't give yourself the raw materials, you can't build a healthy brain. Right. So, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that our brain is mostly, uh, this is, this is gross, but it's, it's mostly a bag of fat waiting to go rancid. So we need antioxidants. We need healthy, a wide variety of healthy unoxidized fats. So, um, you know, I've had people's doctors tell them to go on a fat-free diet. And I'm like, what is Mm -hmm. this, 1975? This is not like, that's not a thing anymore. Um, And it's like, you can't have a healthy nervous system. Like I have a patient with a, that has a brain injury, severe, Mm -hmm. severe concussion. And she suddenly developed obesity after her head injury. This is a known thing because the head injury was close enough that to the middle of her brain that it affected her pituitary gland. And that regulates, there's, there's, uh, our weight regulation resides in that among lots Uh of other things, right? Uh Uh Also turns out, we just found out that she's living in a moldy house. So she and has, we're back to environment. So she has a perfect storm of she's every day she's being poisoned with neuro chem, neurotoxic chemicals, uh, mm-hmm. chemicals that are literally used by the military as nerve agents. She's breathing those in every day. So that's keeping her from healing. It's affecting her nervous system and her immune system. But she, and she is struggling to eat healthy food because she has brain fog and fatigue and body pain, right? And so she doesn't have the energy to plan her food. So what she does, she goes and eats out. She's got to eat, right? Uh But her doctor told her to go because she gained weight. She said, you need to go on a fat-free diet. And I was like, she understands you have a neural, like you've got brain damage that we're trying to heal. How are we going to heal that with no fat? I mean, just staggering. The, the, the level of stupidity was just staggering. Like, Amazing. So this goes back. Credit. She was just like, uh, I don't think that's right. And I was like, you're correct. That is not right. What you do need to do is flood your body with really high quality, healthy fats. Natural but a wide fats. variety. Yeah. So uh-huh. fats that occur in nature, some of them saturated, some of them cholesterol, some of them non-saturated from plants. So you want to eat some avocados, you need to eat some olives, you need to have some olive oil, you need to have some almonds and some cashews and some, you know, walnuts and, but also greens and salads and, and, and some healthy free range animals that ate their indigenous natural diet of bugs and grass not corn. Right, right. Or anything else that was injected in them. So this kind of goes back to your comment earlier about the body can heal itself if we can remove those obstacles. Bingo. 
And many of these obstacles we're putting there ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And many of them, we're humans as a group are putting them there, but we're not making those choices as individuals. And that's where I feel like a lot of the chemical exposure comes in and a lot of like the exposure to toxic chemicals from water damaged buildings. Like we're not choosing to have our house be water damaged. We're not choosing to have that chemical company dump, dump their waste in our water. Um, we right. just are not necessarily empowered to stop it. So, but we can choose what we put in our mouths. Yes. Yes. Which, and to that, let me if, ask a if question. You have money. If you have the money and the resources, you can choose what you put in your mouth. Okay. Fair enough. So let me ask a, a just off the cuff question about how do you feel about supplements? Where do you stand on that? That's a really good question. Um, and that is my, my stance has actually evolved over the years. Actually, I okay. now 20 years into practice, I am having a lighter. Hmm. Sometimes I'm having a lighter hand with supplements. I am less likely now to tell people they should take something every day for the rest of their life. Like I'm much more inclined to say, let's try to get you into balance. And then think okay. of supplements as a prepaid phone card that like, we might need to just top you up every now and then. Um, oh, so about it okay. that way. Now that said, there is no question that because of the of commercial farming techniques, our soils are less nutrient have less nutrients in them, and our food has less nutrients in it than it did in 1950. And that is mm-hmm. trackable and measurable. We know that organic food is often 50% more nutritious than conventionally grown produce of the same sort. Um, so we are getting less nutrients from our food, that, like to to just to start with, and that's before okay. we find it. And then if Got we it. a refined food diet, not only are we not getting some of the nutrients that we needed, but some of those refined, like refined sugar or refined flour, it actually mm-hmm. uses up nutrients to process it and get it through our body. So they, mm. you know, if you only ate like white flour, you would deplete yourself of nutrients. And that's, it's, that is so rapid and so severe. That's why they, they fortify those refined foods with vitamins is that so that people don't develop nutrient deficiencies so fast that they put it, that they make the connection and sue the company. Oh, wow. But you can, if you had un, like if you did, let's say unfortified wheat flour, that's Mm -hmm. that is so refined that it's white color. um, You would develop a couple, several different nutrition, nutrient deficiencies, bad enough to be obviously trackably sick in under a month. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of terrifying. So if you're a patient, if if you're a patient that hypothetically, we'll call her, um, (laughs) and back up. Yeah. Let's just say, she the girl loves the carbs and she likes bread so yeah she knows she knows the refined white bread is bad um and she likes to bake and wants to bake her own stuff so for that kind of a patient i mean what is how do you in a healthy way bake bread 
with knowing you know oh, what's out there well, on the star so, shows so, right so now. I will make a deal with that person. With yeah. Becca. Uh, yeah. I'll make a deal with her that uh, she could, if she loves to bake, this is a perfect opportunity to explore traditional baking techniques with, with unrefined whole grains from different parts of the world. Really? So you could okay. make, let's say, a beautiful muffin out of mm -hmm. buckwheat flour, almond flour, coconut flour. Mm. you know high fiber high nutrient um and and gorgeous i mean they're just gorgeous and they're i mean they're not going to have that ridiculous fluffiness that you get from refined flour and all that gluten right but they're right. still really delicious and tender and and you throw some blueberries in there and put some organic grass-fed <laughs> butter on mm -hmm. it and oh so good so I, yeah, I guess so really I stay away from the wheats. Just, in yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do not see a random subset of the population. The people that come to see me have self-selected because they're chronically ill and the Western medical system didn't work for them. So by right. default, I'm getting the people that have fallen through the cracks where there's something extra going on. Right. Okay. So that means that everything that I've seen in my practice is biased, dr dramatically biased. Right. Right. Um, but, but, but from that point of bias, I would say that 90% of my patients get 90% better when they take gluten and dairy out of their diet. Just gluten and dairy, just right out of the get go. Start there. Yeah. That's amazing it's, to me. It's, it's, it has gotten to the point where I'm just like, this is standard issue. You want to work with me? You're going to spend a month gluten and dairy free and you're, then you're going to come back and, and I'm going to give you support for your neurotransmitters because at this point, everyone is anxious and depressed because we feel like it's the end of the world. Like on some level, everybody on the planet is in fight or flight right now. And when you're in fight or mm -hmm. flight, nothing else works. Right. Right. So I, like sense. everybody is now, let me treat your fight or flight and go gluten and dairy free for four weeks. Come back and tell me what happened. And you know what? Everybody comes back and they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm pooping again. I'm sleeping again. I'm not consumed with negative thoughts of the apocalypse. I, you know, like all these things have changed because that inflammation's gone. Because of um, that. Their, um, their brain inflammation's gone. Their gut inflammation's gone. Their sinus issues are gone. Their ear issues are gone. The gut pain's gone. The reflux is gone. The back pain is gone. The knee pain is gone because, right? And their depression's gone. Their anxiety's gone. They're sleeping and now their brain fog is gone. And all of that- wow was just taking away the foods that were causing those two things. Yeah. And now and obviously for a child I with totally an airway. We got off track. We were going to talk no. about the nutrients in the foods. We were, I but totally but I have Nope, you're good and we'll circle back to that, but the, you know, just kind of talking about what we take out, you know, something as simple as that. Obviously it's not going to course correct. There's not enough from the jaw, that kind of thing, you know, that's a different treatment course but for a child with an airway disorder that doesn't sleep um, that has adhd could something as simple as taking gluten and dairy out just to start with and working with you know a, a naturopathic doctor such as yourself help with the inflammation that might just open up the airway some and get them at least some relief it's it is adhd 101 got it gluten-free dairy-free sugar-free um and that's hard for children if they've already if they if they get yeah. sugar developed uh, introduced really early, their brain evolves 
it, it's, um, I think, I don't actually, I could be wrong about this, but I think that what happens to the brain is very similar to what would happen to a baby who is exposed to cocaine uh, or heroin in utero. Um, it, it's that you develop, it's probably closer to heroin, um, but you okay. develop addiction pathways uh, in the developing brain. If there's so there will be withdrawal of some kind. Yes, and it's it can be really traumatic for children to go off of white sugar once they once it's been introduced. Wow. Um, yeah. So, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it while you still have control over what the children are eating. Right. Right. Is that going to be because a we're talking long term? We're talking long term health. Days where your child has turned into a demon and they're screaming at the top of their lungs. No, no. it's going to be horrible. But do not get in. Um, right. The earplugs. <laughs> like know. some zucchini bread and yeah. 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 Or do it slowly, you know, like wean it slowly. Um, mm. There's 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 a lot of different approaches, but um, yeah, like I said, there's 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 multiple factors going on here. There's the inflammation from things in gluten and dairy that aren't particularly compatible to hum most human bodies. There's the mm. lack of nutrients in refined wheat. Um, there's the lack of fiber for chewing. So we like mm -hmm. the, the, all of those are hitting airway in different ways. So uh, dairy, storm. Yeah, dairy very often. And I would say maybe gluten a quarter of the time, but dairy almost 100% of the time makes all these membranes puffy, all the membranes. I'm pointing because I keep thinking. Right. She's face. pointing up to her jaw and everything. Yeah, that, 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 yep. this, it makes the nose and the sinus and the throat and the tongue and the mouth and the lungs. It makes all of that a little bit puffy. And dairy okay. does that reliably and it produces more mucus. And I would say in a quarter to maybe half of people, gluten does something similar. And so, yes, you're taking an already narrow airway and then you're adding a millimeter you know, maybe two millimeters, if it swells by a quarter of a millimeter all the way around, mm -hmm. I mean, a quarter of a millimeter is not very much, right? But if right. you do that all the way around the circumference of stuff, you've now lost more than a millimeter in diameter. And if it swells a whole millimeter, that tube is closed, right? Uh, so you're yeah. losing, so just from the inflammatory standpoint, Right. And then there's the development yeah. pieces and all the other bits. And then when it comes to ADHD, not only like you've got the oxygen deprivation piece from the airway problem, but you mm -hmm. also have the inflammation in the brain from the gluten and the irritating molecules in gluten and dairy. Right. So you've got both of those pieces. And then if you've also got sugar, you've got blood sugar going like this and they're going to like they're getting high and then withdrawing and high and withdrawing over and over and over again. And so but how could we possibly expect a child in that situation to focus? Right. It's mad. Right. I don't know about any other parents listening, but I can tell you as a mom, I want to go through my kitchen right now and just pull everything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I just so, sometimes I tell people like, imagine that you are now living in a, a, a bamboo hut in the middle of the jungle. And you have to got you've got to go out and forage your food, right? Think like rethink your That's food. That's what we're that focusing much. on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or or you know, take yourself back in time to the 1950s when everybody was still growing their victory gardens, and every every household in the suburbs in America had a vegetable garden in the yard. And so, you, for people for people that can't do that, what do you think about you know, frozen 
vegetables. Great. That's still going to be in that process. It, oh no, it, those are good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it does break down. You'll they'll, they'll get a little mushier, but mm-hmm. you'll get frozen is is a great option because they're often barely cooked if they're cooked at okay. all. Yeah. And I mean, if it's if it's frozen or nothing, frozen's great. It's better than the other. I myself am living in a tiny little cave of an apartment right now, and I haven't gotten to garden in years, and I really miss it. And I actually find that I feel I have a level of anxiety that I don't now that I don't have when I've got enough space to have a little bit of a garden. And you you can do a lot of gardening in a very in small a small space. space. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can grow mm-hmm. a lot of food in a really small space. Um, just talk to all my people in Great Britain. I mean, those, they have mastered, you know, how to do it. Yep. massive foods in these tiny little gardens. Yeah. So um, going back to, I mean, we, we, we touched on, obviously you're seeing more patients with airway issues and, you know, this is that third generation coming through, which, you know, I, I think, I think I understand that. Um. I tend to be more optimistic and that's, you know, part of why CAF is here. We don't think it's too late, right? You know, children's airway first things. There is still an opportunity to turn the ship around and fix this. And I think, and I think one of the things that we advocate for is this whole cross-functional approach. Yes. So uh, from your perspective, how can we benefit from that? And then how do we even get the structure in place? I honestly don't know how we shift such a deeply seated paradigm as our broken medical system. Um, what I, but what I can say is that it's broken to in different ways and different amounts in different states. So, I mean, one of the upsides of the bizarre situation of the United States essentially being 50 separate countries <laughs> is that right. we do actually have quite different medical systems in different states. And so, you know, one of the things I think we could do is start by looking at the states that have more integrative models. And surprise, surprise, those are the states that have been licensing naturopathic doctors since the 1920s. Like um, Washington, for example. Yeah, like Washington or and Oregon. Oregon. Yeah, mm-hmm. they've been licensed since 1919 and 1935. And uh, Vermont was really close after that. So, you know, people think naturopathic doctors are new. We're not. We actually predate medical doctors. We, we're we are mm. the original doctors in the United States. Um, mm. It just got almost wiped out in the 1920s. Whole other story. But um, in the states where naturopathic doctors have always been part of the system and the whole medical system evolved with holistic, integrative doctors, uh, Doctors with a holistic integrative approach as part of, they were always part of the medical system. Those mm-hmm. systems are a little bit different. They look different. They work differently. So, you know, in Vermont, a naturopathic doctor, an acupuncturist, and such, they're, they're all covered by Medicare and Medicaid. And like you're in Washington and oh. Oregon and, and um, Vermont, most, uh, not most, but it is completely normal to have a, a naturopathic doctor as your primary care doctor. Um, and like in Washington state, they mm. piloted a program, it was probably close to 10 or 15 years ago, called the 
Blue Ribbon Commission was, and I, I wish I knew more of the details of it, but it was called the Blue Ribbon Commission. And one of the things they were looking at as naturopathic care as a medical home and the medical home model versus primary care model. And medical okay. is, um, I think what primary care was originally supposed to be, but evolved out of medical home is that you have one practitioner that truly quarterbacks and coordinates all of your care. So you have one practitioner who you have a long-term relationship with, and they mostly take care of everything for you and only mm -hmm. refer you out for the things that they can't do. Um, but even when they refer you out, it's still coordinating holistically it. and we're they're, all together working they're together, they're, sharing they're information. They're talking to that practitioner and sharing information. Okay. Um, and so they, they really tried a lot in Washington to make a system like that. I think that the digital infrastructure became a problem. Um, okay. And you and I have talked about my secret desire to participate yes. in fixing the digital infrastructure of medicine so that it's not as broken. But um, right. yeah, I mean, I think that there are models close to where we might need to be, but I think a lot of it means getting, letting go of the fragmentation in medicine and having, uh, changing the funding and reimbursement in medicine, Right. I hate to keep coming mm -hmm. back down to money, but it drives everything. In our but it it and, does. Yeah. And, so the know, way insurance is set up is. The way insurance is set up is that primary care doctor gets paid very, very little. And so they, they, so in order to survive, they have to do very little. And, you know, if instead the primary care doctors get paid the most per, per visit, and then they can spend a lot more time with their patient and they can also their their clinic or their staff get reimbursed for the time it takes to do all that coordination of care which let me tell you takes a lot of time mm -hmm. um, it's getting on the phone and waiting on hold and connecting with another office and i mean it just it's it is labor intensive to coordinate sure care. And sure. it's labor intensive for all the practitioners in a coordinated care team they have to have the the time has to be created for them to actually sit down and review notes and stuff like that mm -hmm. and get themselves and up discuss it. And yeah. That takes time that currently does not exist. It's not that they're not getting paid for it. The time's literally not there. I mean, right. they're already working a hundred hours a week. They can't cram in another extra 50, you know, it's just mm -hmm. not possible. So, so, like the whole reimbursement structure needs to be changed so that those pieces, all those administrative pieces that have to happen for good coordinated care to happen, like they, they, it has to get reimbursed. Got it. Yeah. So at the end of every segment, I always ask our guests the same question and um, I'd like to open this up to you at, at this point. So what would you like to tell parents of children with who who have a diagnosed or an undiagnosed airway dysfunction? I don't I don't know because I don't work with children. <laughs> um, I guess I I mean the first thing I would probably do is send them to this to to the CAF's website because we are starting to accumulate probably the only not just the best but the only hub for resources, right? So I would want to educate them on, you know, if they're under six years old, there are things that can be done quickly and rapidly, and we can actually change the physical structure of the airway and improve it 
before it has to require really expensive, extensive surgery and stuff like that. So I would really mm -hmm. want them to get, find out who those, who those specialists are and do whatever it takes to get that kind of care. Cause I do really, as much as we talked about, you know, the nutrients and stuff like that, I'm a big believer in the integrity of like fixing structure when, when structure is not correct, it impacts a lot of things. And I, uh, mm -hmm. is, you know, so I'm a big fan of structural correction when it can happen, especially if it can happen as something's being molded and formed. So, right, which is before the age of six. Exactly. So I think mm -hmm. I would like definitely just be like, you need to go talk to these people, get lined up, do whatever it takes to get to one of these experts. Probably almost none of them are local, but it is worth it for the rest of your child's well-being for the rest of their life to get this done before age six. And then I would also talk to them about all the diet and nutrient things, like make sure the kid's getting these nutrients, do whatever it takes to get, you know, kale and broccoli into your kid, um, you know, and, and if they won't chew those, find something else for them to, that they can chew. You know, if you have to puree their vegetables into, into a smoothie, fine, but they also need to chew. Right. To build so the muscle structure. Them to build the muscle structure. So I would talk to them about all of those things, about the nutrients and, you know, when possible, avoiding refined foods, getting them off of sugar. Um, sugar and refined flour are, I, from basically what we learned from Weston Price, are the big culprits in that palate getting narrower as the kid develops. So it, it can start as wide and become narrow from those foods. So just get off that refined garbage as much as possible. So awesome. I think those are the things I'd probably say. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Andrews. I, I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Becky Andrews, for sharing her medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave us a review or a comment about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. If you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone. <laughs>